house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Maybe the heroes and villains of our stories are actually just day players in a much bigger movie. But I was naked dressed in my I want to live a big, great, fantastical life. Let's get married. We've been dating less than a year. I know. And I feel like I've shown incredible restraint waiting this long. You made me run like I never run. I love you, but I may not be equipped to be loved this much. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that is definitely not Peggy Lee, but we might be Barbara Cook. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File. I am here, as always, with my unreliable narrator, Joe Reed. I'm a trickster, much like life. I fool you and lead you in wrong directions and uh, and such and so on. We will get into it, but not our first horrible bus. Uh, I wrote maybe. that down. I said, here, we meet again. Unexpected bus accident. This is kind of and surprise again. bus and accident, again. the movie. And again. Yeah. This movie really, is- really goes for it. Is this the definitive person gets run over by a bus movie? Well, here's what I'm thinking watching this, and I don't want to get too far into it before we introduce our guest, but I will just say that Dan Fogelman vastly over overestimates the amount of conversations that people have in a city where they are walking backwards into a street without looking anywhere. <laughs> like, I feel like those conversations never got interesting until they, until the person having the conversation started walking backwards into the street. And I don't quite know what kind of conversational style that is, but it's not one I'm very much used to. I am very utilitarian when I cross the street. I'm, I'm not like whatever, like, you know, I try to look both ways. I live on the edge a little bit. No, no, no. But like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm a, I'm a person. I, I have awareness of my surroundings. I try You're not to... You're a human to and not an alien. ...heedlessly back into traffic like I'm some kind of psychotic tour guide or something like that. So, yeah. We'll get into the psychosis, but you're right. We have a guest to bring in. Yes. You know him as, or listeners know him as the host of the Incinerator podcast, which we've both been on, talking about our beloved focus features. Indeed. Billy Ray Bruton's here. Oh, welcome. So, so that's why I'm here. Okay, cool. <laughs> we tricked you. This was not a movie that you uh, stamped your claim in uh, as soon as we met you, but uh, we tricked you into uh, getting on this bus. Well, all hey. of your life, all the choices that everybody around you has made in their lives has led to this moment of you being on this podcast talking about this movie. Hey, I'm just glad to be here talking about my favorite doc about Roger Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> Really oh glad, God! Really glad. To oh, we've made a, we've made a terrible mistake. Oh no. <laughs> well, uh, we could 
We could do an episode on the Ebert life itself. That was cruelly snubbed for an Oscar. Can I just can I just claim all movies called Life Itself from from now until the end of time? Yes, that's your niche. That is okay. your niche on this podcast yes. now. Yes, yes, yes. 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 I, li- exactly. I like to be specific with what I bring to the table. Very good. All right. Yes. The bus, though. The bus. Okay. Though. Definitive <laughs> person gets hit by a bus. Cinema. Oh. Um, Life itself. Margaret, obviously, the aforementioned Margaret. Final destination. Final and destination. Don't forget mean Joe girls, Black. kinda. Meet Joe, Joe Black. Black. Well, that's not a bus. No, oh, right. That's not, a car. Not a bus, but a car. It's a car. It would be funnier. It if is it was still a bus because he does the whole flip. I do think yeah. it. I do think it falls into the subgenre that I like to call negligent bus trauma. <laughs> yes, definitely true. Yes, definitely true. Mean Girls is a fake out. Which I always sort of misremember. Well, no, because Regina does get hit by something to put her in that little. Well, I think the line is, and then she died. Just kidding. That's the fake out. So she gets hit by the bus, but she doesn't. But then the sophomore plastics or whatever at the very end, that's also a fake out. That's a fake out. You know that because you've seen that on every other episode leading into Drag Race. You know what Mean Girls has? An unreliable narrator, as we we note in the end of that movie. Okay. Listen, if you're listening to Olivia Wilde, every movie has an unreliable narrator because life is an unreliable narrator. So... uh, it it's it's the it's takes i will say some degree of confidence for a movie and for a screenwriter to write a college thesis level uh conceit into their film and then within the story make it a college thesis like like that feels some kind of like it's either potato potato you say confidence I say psychosis. This is what I mean. I I think it's a thin line in life, Chris, sometimes between the two. (laughs) You know why it's a thin line in life? Because life is an unreliable narrator. We'll we'll be coming back to that, I think, a lot tonight. It's like like thrift store Charlie Kaufman. Uh, They're they're trying real... Yeah. they're, they're, They're searching for that same level of complication and profundity that Kaufman is searching for, except they took the wrong bus. (laughs) <laughs> also, Kaufman overtly, I think, is a is a bit of a misanthrope. Whereas this movie plays as if it is, has sort of an, a warm and open heart towards humanity, but delights in endlessly putting them through horrors and misfortunes and paces and tragedies and whatnot. And it is it's a saw movie, basically. It's in the jigsaw yeah. cinematic universe. This film, not. not this film trucks in the kind of nihilism that you only see in films like that, where this is, it's not torture porn. It's, I mean, it kind of is, it's just emotional torture porn. Yeah. Right. I think that's right. And so, yeah, when you say that it's in the same universe as the Saw movies, I can get, I can get on board with that. Cause there are a lot of these characters that I would like to see strapped to some sort of weird jaw device <laughs> that rips them. Yeah. Out at them. some points in the movie, not to be awful, but I'm like, where's the bus? Can we bring the bus back again at certain points in this movie? It's very um, few characters who get out of this movie without some kind of tragic end, honestly. So like the bus, she comes for us all in this movie. There's yeah. cancer, yeah. multiple forms of cancer, suicide, suicide. like, Yep. And it's not just what I think is sadistic about this movie. It's not just like the individual person's death is awful, but like other people's death 
are like trauma that's inflicted on other people. Like yeah. he has to watch Olivia Wilde get hit by the bus. He yes. shoots himself in front of his therapist Whoa, in yes. a session. That's a whole like, discussion right there. Yeah. Oh, there's a we'll have, we're going to have a lot to to chew on with this movie. I will say for as much as I feel like this is a movie that kind of got swiftly uh, kicked into the ground and buried uh, not oh, yeah. long after people first saw it, but uh, I think there's a there will be at least a lot to talk about in this episode. So good for us. Certainly, certainly. But we have some things to get into before we get so deep into the movie. Namely, we have our guest here, Billy Ray. Welcome once again. We were on your podcast. You sure were uh, incinerating the films of Focus Features. Now, talk about like trauma visited upon us that we had to <laughs> incinerate so many of our beloved favorite movies. Yeah, uh, the whole reason that podcast was created was to inflict as much trauma as possible. That like life itself will hopefully hopefully become intergenerational and passed down. Um, yeah, that's all I can hope for. What gave you the idea to do the a, a listing podcast in that particularly? brutalist uh, fashion well i mean i think we're we're all you know you, you we're all screen drafts people here and i was That's true you know i've been doing screen drafts since the early days and i love you are idea. i will say one of the more take no prisoners screen drafts presences oh. i have i have uh listened to on that podcast you know i like to think you know i don't i don't go on podcasts to make friends I go on podcasts <laughs> to stir up some shit, and uh, but I, I love competition podcasts. And I was like, "Well, shit!" I was like, "Well, fuck you, Clay. You kind of came up with the perfect format." Then I was like, "Wait a minute, screen drafts is so regimented and so regulated. Like, what if I made something that was literally just it had so many rules that it basically there were no rules." And so I'm also a big fan there of film spotting. There are so many rules. I know. And I'm also a big film spotting fan, and they do this thing every year. Sure. They do film spotting madness, and they utilize the quote-unquote incinerator. So I was like, well, I'm going to take my two favorite film ca- film podcasts, steal from both of them an adequate amount, and then pretend like sure. it's this brand new thing that no one's ever thought of. <laughs> I will say the one thing that I found surprisingly freeing about that format when we were on it was – all but one of those movies are going to be incinerated. So it does feel like shoot your guns in the air kind of thing of just like, I'm just going to go all out and whatever, because by the end of this thing, everything's going to burn except for one thing. And we managed to get, uh, we got eternal sunshine to the top spot, right? Not to spoil listeners who want to go listen to it. You should listen to it anyway. We had such a good time. Um, So I think I, I was happy with the outcome and chaos reigned everywhere else. And that was very fun. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, 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 that was the right number one film for that list. It doesn't always happen where we get the right film up top, which is the nature of, of the beast. But sure. that was an episode where I felt like it was the right film, the right place. Everything else besides that is just madness. But that made a lot of sense. Yeah. So, well, but that's not how we met you. We met you through Screen Drafts because we did the Queer Oscars with you, I think. Right, and you right. laid your claim into this movie like immediately. I did. What? Okay, so tell us. Uh, I think we uh, buses aside. Uh, tell us why. Well, so this was a film that when it was released initially, I avoided like the plague, and I avoided it because I I am one of those people who ever since the very first 
it started airing have thought that This Is Us was one of the worst pieces of garbage TV shows that ever existed. I was not on the This Is Us train. I'm so I'm I'm parenthood loyal, yo. And so when I see a movie that feels <laughs> like or a series that feels like parenthood light, I just wasn't getting behind that. And so I was already like, oh, yeah. God, more Dan Fogelman. Like, I cannot do this. So I avoided it like the plague until one day our screen draft's own Clay Keller was like, no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> this movie is wild and you need to see it. And so I was like, fine, okay. And I begrudgingly saw it after getting pressure from Clay for a while. And within the first 20 minutes, I was like, is this the most glorious thing that has ever been created? <laughs> and then eventually I was like, no, obviously it's not. It's it's absolute garbage. But in one of the most, like, what the fuck, like, kind of You kind of, of can't believe it as it's happening. It really no. does kind yeah. of beggar belief as you're watching it. Um, I would say it's the first 45 minutes of the movie, and then yes. when it gets really boring, mm-hmm. then it's like, why am I still here? Yes. 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 It, it is, it is, it is like all of the, it's like, it's so convoluted and complicated. It's, it's like they tip the dominoes at the beginning, but all the dominoes just like land in a big pile. So there's nothing pretty about the way the dominoes go. And, but that first 45 minutes, I just, I could just watch that on repeat. And never get bored. And never get yeah. bored. Well, and again, there's something about the off-putting confidence of a movie that steps forward in the way that this movie does. Where in the first 15 minutes, this movie tries like four different things that Fogelman believes, seems to fully believe are very audacious. And maybe would be in the hands of a better filmmaker. But are just one on top of the other, so incredibly obnoxious, Make manages to make Oscar Isaac somebody who you deeply cannot stand. Oh, God. And then, and it's just Quite all so front-loaded. And then by the time it gets to the point where the movie settles down, which is essentially when, like, Olivia Cook comes into the play, right? That's sort of when the movie is like, and... Here we are. And by that time, you're just so beat up as a viewer by what you've seen. And it's, and again, there is some kind of demented confidence in that, but it's the kind of confidence of like somebody who walks into a party who's like very loud and is sort of, you know, makes their presence felt and maybe like yells something across the room and says something that's like slightly offensive but not so much that you could like make a federal case about it or whatever and they so you're walk- calling dan fogelman a frat bro yes. a little bit where he walks in and you just sort of look yeah. to your friend and you're just like that guy <laughs> this sucks. fucking guy like yeah. that guy sucks <laughs> and and i don't want to like make aspersions about dan fogelman as a person right, right, like right. whatever like very well may maybe like a fantastic person but listen the the persona of this film i think is so obnoxious well, I mean, like, you call it confidence, and I don't feel, like, when I watch this movie, I don't feel like I'm watching somebody who's confident in making some leaps. I feel like I'm watching someone who's delusional in making some leaps that are just, like, bizarre. I mean, it's, we've seen bad movies like this before. We've talked about bad movies like this before. Yeah. But it's the pedigree of people involved in this movie, and, like, involved at, like, the minute level where, like... Annette Benning shows up to smoke 
and have Oscar Isaac hurl, like, awful things at her, including yeah. shooting himself. And, uh, like, Antonio Banderas is in this movie. Gene Smart is in a scene of this movie. Yeah. Um, this is the other play, thing. Like, this movie completely mis- misapprehends what people who go to movies for actresses, as I raise my hand, um, <laughs> will feel like about a movie that... Uh, Miss like Kills all of its actresses. <laughs> well, or just like completely, you know, declines to make good use of Annette Benning and Gene Smart in a movie like this, and you're just like, right. God damn you. Yeah. Well, but I think the thing I'm getting at is that it's like a lot of people had to just be like, Yeah, this is fine. This yeah. is normal. Sure. Like that and I mean, this is also at a weird time for Amazon, too, which we'll talk about the Amazon of this whole movie. Yeah. In that, like, they're kind of greenlighting some crazy stuff to the point that I'm like, Annette is the last of it. We will never see Amazon doing a movie like Annette ever again. I hope you soaked it up while you could. Yeah. yeah. This, yeah. I think what mo- what most attracts me to this film in particular is I am fascinated by filmmakers who they have these very quick sort of instantaneous successes, which then affords them the ability to do whatever they want to do. And this is one of those where like, and this is what you chose. And like, this was definitely a case of his success wrote a check that his talent could not cash. And I I look, I, I think of something like malignant from last year, where it's like James Wan, I'm on top of the world. You know, and I let me be clear before I say that I love Malignant, but so like I, I think too. about that movie, like yeah. he's on top of the world after a Fast and Furious movie and the Conjuring films. What does he make? He makes a wild, fucking, insane movie that yeah. that works. And this is that is a movie with confidence too. I will say, yes, like speaking that of, is a movie yeah. that I would say is made with confidence. I mean, yeah. not. I don't know what I don't know. I mean, I saw it, but I don't know that Danny Collins was received so well that it should have given him this kind of confidence. <laughs> um, oh, we have thoughts on Danny like, Collins. You know, I will say <laughs> we love Danny. We'll Collins. get into it. We did you an episode on Danny Collins. Collins. Had no idea what we what we would think of it when we watched it, and then we both kind of somewhat sheepishly <laughs> we, came to the recording and were like. <laughs> I kind of loved that movie, and it's and, a good. Yeah. It's, it's not a bad movie. I really it's like. It's also it. insane yeah. too. Yes, like, oh, like I've mentioned several times, the movie is, is sponsored by the Hilton Honors membership. Oh my God, um, it it, it reminds me of it reminds me of the 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 scene and what's love got to do with it when she when she runs in and 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 asks for help from the noble Ramada Inn manager. Like, my name is Joe, Tina if you Turner. Do not sound drop that. I will be so mad. I'm Tina Turner. My husband and I just had a fight. I'm supposed to open at the academy tonight. I have 36 cents on a mobile card. But if you would give me a room, I swear I will pay you back. No, 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 that won't be necessary. Now, Miss Turner, I'd I'd be honored, really. We'll, We'll take care. My name is Tina Turner. I've had a fight with my husband. I don't have any money. Do you have a room that I could use for the night? And then just a pause. Miss Turner, it'd be an honor. The noble Ramada One of the greatest scenes in all of cinema. 
it's it's when I did that trivia round, Chris, several months ago on uh, clerks in the movies. I yes, should have included yes, that character. Yes. That would have been a good one. Yeah, I mean, he that noble Ramada Inn manager saves Miss Turner's life. Okay, the thing you're yeah. saying I mean, about yes. like him cashing a check and his talent couldn't do it. What's interesting about well, like fascinating and like you know, it is like watching not a bus crash but a car crash of kind of when this movie happens like this is us kind of burned like bright and huge and like dropped off started to drop off as soon as this movie happens right to the point that like yeah the final season just aired no one watched it no one cared and like it got one emmy nomination joe or none i will say though uh, yes, it got one. And, uh, With so a huge campaign behind it? The trajectory of This Is Us is interesting because in terms of its like pop culture cachet, yes, it did drop off, drop off around the time that you said so. But like, it was an Emmy, serious Emmy contender in terms of nominations up until its penultimate season. Right. And it was widely considered to be a major contender this year, like that campaign went all out. They were, I got so many emails about Mandy Mm -hmm. Moore this season for this is us. Like Mm -hmm. they really, really were going hard. Like their cast members were in the press all the time talking about how much Mandy Moore deserved an Emmy nomination. And like, they were really, really going for it. And, and much like shows that like modern family before it and whatever, were like shows that, sort of become unstuck from the cultural conversation, but still go on for like several seasons. The Emmys tend to sometimes have a longer tail with them and then just drop off mm-hmm. unexpectedly. Like you kind of can't predict when the Emmys will like totally be done with a show. And this is us. It was this last year where they were just like, yeah, we've got other <laughs> fish to fry. But like, even up until like two years or a year ago or two years ago, like Chris Sullivan was getting nominated right. yeah. and, and you know, it was getting outstanding drama nominations. It's kind of, but Amazing the ratings were dropping off at the same time, too. Yeah, certainly they were not. This was a show that got a lot of attention early because it was the rare network show that was getting really yeah. strong ratings. And as a uh, sort of family drama, as opposed to like a Dick Wolf, you know, Chicago sanitation department kind of, you know what I mean? Like whatever show. And I think there was a lot of every once in a while when a show like that pops people get very, very hopeful that, like, network TV is back, baby, like, that kind of a thing. And, and I'm less burned... optimistic about Abbott Elementary this year, as much as I love that show. I mean, I think it's different for sitcoms. I think also ABC does a good job of sort of nurturing its sitcoms in that way. Blackish managed to go for quite a long while, and I'm I'm hopeful that for Abbott Elementary. I think I think with dramas, it's different, especially when a drama like This Is Us, where the hook of it was so much, you won't believe how they're going to make you cry this week. <laughs> like, that was big in the marketing, whatever. Where, like, this show is going to, like, punch you in your feels, and you're going to whatever. And I think Abbott Elementary isn't that flashy. And so I think a show like that can manage to sort of keep going. Like, they haven't even... I mean, not to, like, totally, like, detour us, but, like... Abbott Elementary still hasn't gotten to the point yet that I do think they may get to where, like, they have the big romantic hook. Yeah. Like, they're sort of inching towards that with Quinta Brunson and yeah. and Tyler James Williams characters. But, like, they haven't even gotten to that part yet. And that's sort of when a sitcom 
is at this sort of crucial juncture. I hope they throw a curveball like, at that plot line, I plot line because I don't want it to be Jim and Pam. That's yeah. not every sitcom needs to have a exactly. romance, guys. Like, it really doesn't. Just let Janelle James do whatever the hell she wants to do. Uh, Billy Ray, this is also your first time on our show, and we always like to get a little background on our first-time guests, and we call it our Oscar origin story. Uh, so okay. tell us either if there was a movie that got you interested in the Oscars the first time you recognized Ooh. the Oscars as an entity, or you know what got you either first noticing or interested in the Oscars. Well, that would be uh, the same people who got me into pretty much all film, which would be Siskel and Ebert. Um, I was an enormous Siskel and Ebert fan when I was a kid. It used to come on Sunday nights at 1030 on our, on our station out of Chattanooga. And so I would stay up, which that was late for me when I was, you know, five and six years old, but I would stay up every Sunday until 1030. I would watch Siskel and Ebert and that gave me like, and I would be writing down films that I needed to see if they were at the video store and, and every year they would do an, if we picked the winners episode where they would sure. sort of give out their own Academy Awards to, to a degree. And I was just obsessed with that. And that's what got me into the Oscars, you know, right off the bat. And I think my first Oscars was one of those Billy Crystal, one of the Billy Crystal Oscars, who I still think is the best host ever. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that, that kind of set me, but, you know, like I said, it not only set me on like a path of loving the Oscars and being obsessed with the Oscars, but they're really the ones who got me into film in general. So, yeah. I think that's a great answer. I a lot of that uh, uh, resonates mm-hmm. with me as well. I definitely remember them being a big gateway, as they were for like quite a number of people. I think in our generation, were we too? Um, just a great gateway for people who were like, how else was I supposed to know about a lot of those movies? Like truly, yeah. you know, there was no there was no internet to speak of really at the time. There was no, that's how it was and. Even especially when they would talk about movies that you didn't see advertised on TV a lot. You know what I mean? There were always those like handful of movies that got all of the TV commercials and whatever. And then towards the end of the episodes, they would get into sort of smaller stuff. A lot of stuff would be from Europe or whatever or, uh, or Asia and smaller indie stuff. And that was the stuff that really fascinated me. Um, I remember. Oh, shoot. What was it? Oh, the Renee Zellweger movie, A Price Above Rubies. I remember them talking about, and I remember being like, oh, like, I know who Renee Zellweger is, because I think that came out just around the time that Jerry Maguire had come out, and... um, Either the same year or the year before. Yes. I think I think maybe that's... So maybe I only knew her from Empire Records maybe at the time. Maybe it's a year after. But anyway, um, I remember that stuck out in my mind for whatever reason, because that was not a movie that got TV commercials. Yeah. But they were talking about it, so they kind of put it in my mind. I've still never seen that movie. I should maybe see that. Movie. My big, but anyway. my big, my big touchstone in terms of films for to them was One False Move, the Carl Franklin film. That was oh, one that they sure. both, a good yeah, movie. movie. And that was one that they both really, really championed. I knew nothing about it because apart from them, the only way I got really news, I also subscribed to like Premiere, Movie Line Magazine, like all of those rags, yeah. and like so I would get most of my info from there or from them. And I remember hearing about One False Move for the first time, and even at that point, when I was guess like ten years old, I was already a big Bill Paxton fan, and so yeah. it was just like, oh hell, I've got to see this movie as soon as it's available. Nice, nice, excellent. Well, I'm very excited to be, ta- be able to talk about this movie. I'm so glad you're on to talk about it with us, Chris. Should we 
get into let's the, get into the 60 plan. second plot description let's yeah. you know like a bus turning a corner <laughs> I'm... we're gonna do the 60 second plot description just as a reminder we are here to talk about life itself not to talk about life we're talking about the movie life itself written and directed by one dan fogelman starring oscar isaac olivia wilde olivia cook that should be illegal you cannot put uh olivia wilde not olivia cook uh together in a movie uh alex moner Mandy Patinkin, Laia Costa, Sergio Paris, Manchetta, Antonio Banderas, Gene Smart, Annette Benning, and uh, Samuel L. Jackson as himself for some reason. Uh, Dan Fogelman, finger quotes, reasons, and various <laughs> MTA buses. Uh, the movie premiered as a TIFF gala uh, on like the second night of the festival. Cratered, we'll definitely talk about that. Yeah. Opened wide September 21st, 2018. Billy yes. Ray, as our guest, you get tasked with doing the 60-second pl- plot description. Are you ready? I'm ready. To, I don't think I'll uh, need 60 seconds. into 60 seconds. Okay. <laughs> All right. Then your 60-second plot description for Life Itself starts now. In this remake of Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret, two intergenerational bloodlines from across the globe fall in and out of love and trauma until they finally make the perfect interracial couple. It's a very goofy, very dysfunctional family tree, and the plot falls and slams into more than a few branches on the way down. It's easy to blaze Samuel L. Jackson, so why don't we? In 20 seconds, that's life itself. That's life itself. Short and sweet like life itself. I mean, basically, you you (laughs) saved us, you could have saved us all two hours of Dan Fogelman's um, uh, scribblings. Um, I mean, scribblings is an apt word for it because he, it feels like it was written like a like a lunatic in a cell just scribbling on with blood on the wall. I was going to say, like, it's like a serial killer's, <laughs> like, greeting cards or something. Like, if, oh. if uh, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer wrote a Mother's Day card, that is life itself. <laughs> oh, this was made by someone with multiple personalities. Like, I, I imagine <laughs> that Dan... Like Dan Fogelman is writing this, like you know, on an on an olive on an olive farm, in on the beautiful <laughs> Spanish sun slamming into his shoulders, and then he hears like, "But wait a second, what about the buses?" <laughs> He's like, "Oh God, what do I do about the buses?" And and of course, it goes without saying that obviously this film was funded by MTA to some degree. I mean, uh, <laughs> MTA, our bus drivers are or MTA's, yeah chief competitor or something like that like it was funded by tesla or something like that (laughs) i remember so distrust in public transportation i do remember thinking when this when this film came when when i uh when i finally got around to seeing this film and i was thinking back to the time that it came out it was like you know mta is featured so much in this you would have think they would have given them more bus ads in los angeles because I never did I see life itself plastered on a bus anywhere. So now, I, I don't and know. Then you what saw the movie and you're like, oh, I get it. Oh yeah, I yeah. It's it. like yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I know. there's a lot that MTA probably doesn't want to be associated with in this film. It's not yeah. just like the death and dismemberment in this movie, because it's also just the things that come out of people's mouths. Like people noted this when the first trailer came out. The one thing about the trailer was like, Oh, here comes an Oscar movie. And at the time I was like, y'all are falling for this hook, line and sinker because this looks like garbage. And like, even in the trailer, the lines that Oscar Isaac says, like the thing he says to Olivia Wilde of like, um, 
Like, I'm not going to go on a date with you because the first time I go on a date with you, that sets my whole life, blah, 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 blah. And I'm g- never going to be away from you for a single day. And it's like, well, that's a m- something a murderer would say. You need to get a restraining order against this man. He's g- You are going to come home and he's going to be wearing your roommate's face. It's it, Every word out of his mouth is psychotic in this movie. Uh, yeah, I will say, however... You are not the only person to look askance at that trailer. No, like I'm not I feel like I was that's the only one. I'm just saying that's like, a little bit of recasting history no, there. I think I a lot of people looked at that trailer one. and were like, Ooh. "I was just saying I yeah. did it." But there, I saw a lot of people being like, "Oh, Oscar movie," and it's like, oh. "Okay." All I remember from that trailer is like, "Oh, Mandy Patinkin and Gene Smart." That's all I remember from that trailer. That's in intriguing. I yeah. I love that idea. Um, the thing about the the premiere of that movie though, because that trailer does drop. And at the very least you do have the feeling of, Oh, they're going for it with this movie. Like they definitely want prestige. They want something very uh, sort of, you know, awards friendly out of this movie. And it sets itself for a TIFF premiere. And we were both at that one. Chris, did you Ooh. see it at that TIFF or did you Hell see it? No, because this is our, the thing is, and I haven't like we haven't mentioned this like in a while, but there's certain movies that after we had started doing this podcast, it's like I'm not watching that a because I don't want to watch that, but b because I'm like I'm not watching that twice <laughs> because yeah. we're gonna have to do it eventually. So um, this premiered on I want to say the first Saturday night of of the it festival. Was the first Saturday or the first Friday. I think it was the first. One of them. I think it was the first Saturday because I think I remember seeing it at the PNI. On the Sunday, because so it premieres at this gala, uh, and the people that I knew who saw it there, who covered it, and and who came out of there, the tweets coming out of there were a lot. There was just like people were like, "You, I, you got to see this for yourselves." I can't believe, I, like, by the third person I saw who compared it to Collateral Beauty, I remember saying to somebody, and it might have been you, where I was like, well, I got to see it. And I was at that point covering the festival for my previous job, which was focused on streaming platforms. And because it was the Amazon angle, I'm like, well, now I definitely have to go see this and write about it. And so um, I went... And I, I actually went back and read your piece because the headline is something like... 10 things that definitely happen in life itself. It literally just became like a laundry list of like, these things actually happened in this movie because it was just so unbelievable at that point. But I remember being like, well, if people are comparing this to collateral beauty, I got to go see it. So I went and saw the P and I, and then it's just like, yeah, like I get it. I get, I get that comparison because it is that same level of like prestige, but also like bonkers and and not good. And I think Collateral Beauty is definitely more fun because yeah, don't, fewer don't, people don't get killed. Don't tarnish the good name of my precious Collateral oh, Beauty. Oh, listen, Collateral Beauty is also a very bad movie. No, it's like, a disaster, but like yeah. it's a it's a more unique disaster. This is just a movie that's at eleven. That's a disaster. Collateral Beauty is like broadcast it to the aliens no one behaves like people behave in that movie plus you get to kind of play along with collateral beauty and try and guess what the next plot twist is going to be and like that's kind of fun too and this movie like we said gets boring at a certain point very no that premiere i remember that premiere and like 
the the tweets that were coming out of it and like yes festival tweets get annoying at a certain mm-hmm. point but like it had the la- the air of exasperation that like people were just waiting to get out of that building as soon as possible <laughs> yeah 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 it was very funny uh, billy ray were you following this like when the movie premiered yes. or like had you already written i it had off? written it off but i still always follow generally the bigger festivals just to see what's coming out because i'm generally always programming for festivals of my own and i remember yeah. i remember that film premiering and Twitter just exploding with the kind of zeal <laughs> that you only get yeah. from these kind of epically bad movies. Um, yeah. Because sometimes, you know, sometimes Twitter will be like, ah, this film sucked. But this was one where people were taking an active relish, relishing in how bad it was. And yeah, I remember one of the very first uh, tweets that I ever saw about this film, which we've already mentioned about this film during this discussion already, which is essentially this film is just trying to be Margaret. <laughs> it is, it is trying to take, it is trying to take this one traumatic incident and then span it and, and turn it into this big complicated. And it just like Kenneth Lonergan can get away with that. Dan Fogelman. Well, he also does that fairly aggravating thing where he takes these kind of painfully, verbose and like overly neurotic and self-aware characters who live in you know new york city and they are going for a postgraduate degree and they're incredibly well versed in like film and and music discussions and we'll get into the pulp fiction and bob dylan cameron crowe but unhinged cameron crowe but then what he does also that i find especially aggravating is because i will be the first in line to forgive a lot of movies that dabble in that pond because at least I can I can find some of those things enjoyable to watch. I can enjoy a Whit Stillman, I can enjoy, you know, I can enjoy a Cameron Crow. What Fogelman does that I find so aggravating is then he decides, but now I'm going to contrast all that with the the realness of this olive field in Spain and the sort oh. of salt of the earth <laughs> Uh, we're, you know, this man works on the land and this is, you know, now we're going to get into some real life and to make everybody be like, you know, uh, really makes you the think. movie does pivot when it goes to Spain. Right. And yes. And deeply, I think that's deeply. And I think that's kind of when it gets really boring. And I think Fogelman really thinks like he's getting deep at that point. Well, it's the thing that you're saying because like it gets super boring. So it's like it's easier to zone out in those parts. But it's just as egregious because it's like you're saying where it's like, look at these salt of the earth people in another country. And it's like, that's just as bad and offensive, Dan Fogelman. Um, Yeah. I will say, I think Banderas is good in this movie. As good as he can be. Right. He's, with that character. He's pretty good. I will say though, he he plays it a bit too he plays it a bit too much like he's in The Godfather. Um, <laughs> sure. Which yeah. is like he is being like no one is taking this movie more seriously than Antonio Banderas. Like he but is I mean like the movie's also asking him to like sit there and mug and be like wise middle-aged man, right? Oh, he's a silver fox in this. Like it's yeah, like I'm going to be the silver fox. And basically basically his whole character exists to just cuckold another man as much as possible. Right. <laughs> also, it's worth noting that 
Antonio Banderas's beard and Mandy Patinkin's beard in this movie are sort of moving across space and time towards each other to yeah. meld into like the er beard. And it's just at some point you're waiting for the sort oh, yeah. of singularity to happen and both of those beards to meet and they you're never saying do you want them to kiss. or else like the universe it's, would implode. It's Hedwig and the Angry Inch. It's Origin of Love. We're just trying to get those beards together. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> One fits in, uh, into the other perfectly. How do you yeah, find exactly. my other half? Is it a he or a she? <laughs> I mean, that narration could fit just as easily with life itself <laughs> as anything else. I'd rather that than all this shit about unreliable narrators. Okay, um, but the second... People don't really talk about the second half of the movie, as we've illustrated. It's very boring. But... It's also doing something that's like kind of annoying, but it like it makes the movie so bifurcated in that like it's trying to teach its own lesson. Like the first half of the movie, you have we didn't even discuss much of Olivia Wilde's character, but like we gotta loop back to it at some point. But we that's should. the whole yeah. like unreliable narrator thing, and like this is doing a different version of the unreliable narrator because it's like the whole portion of this story is supposed to be like the people that you think are bad or ill intended might actually be the good people, and the people that you think are the good people they might be just like misguided, like because it's uh, Antonio Banderas having an affair with. Uh, Laia Costa, who I wanted to root for Laia Costa in this movie because did you guys ever see that movie Victoria? Oh, yeah, years ago. It's again. all shot. Oh, in yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, she's great. I had issues yes. with that movie mostly in like the one takeness of it, but she's great in that movie. Yeah, I liked her a lot. Yeah. Um, so I was rooting for her in this movie, but it's like she just very quickly becomes like a woman dying of cancer for yeah. several decades. And yeah. it's like, it, you know, it's that type of maudlin closer to the type. Well, of she also is a character is. who like essentially bounces between the whims of these sort of proud and selfish men. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like what is what is her actual agency as her husband and the Antonio Banderas character kind of vie for her affections, and she just sort of blows with the wind. Well, she gets to die. Well, from, she gets to die from cancer. That's her agency. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, the movie's version version of her agency is her saying to one man, "I'll never love you as much as I loved yeah. him." Like, yeah, and it's right. it, that's about it. Um, but it, it also gets confusing because. Olivia Cook, who is supposed to be Oscar Isaac and Olivia Wilde's daughter, sees it, when it's trying to pull these two stories together. Their ch- the child in Spain ends up becoming her husband, and blah, yes, blah, the blah. child in but Spain she- he's mainly on the plane. We understand. <laughs> <laughs> in the plane, in the plane. Um, but in tying those two stories together, we see he was on the bus that her mother died on yeah the bus that killed her mother he was the one he was the he was the least the bus driver that distracted the bus yes, driver yes. that killed her mother and in and in dan fogelman's diseased mind he's like fate and then the rest of us are, <laughs> yeah. are just looking at it and just be like this is horrible what a terrible <laughs> coincidence to have to and then they have to be with each other and know this information for the rest of their lives and like and dan fogelman's like is doesn't that tell you something about like the the way of the universe and you're like god i hope not it tells <laughs> you no more it tells you no more than if they discovered into their relationship that they were like 
distant brother and sister or something. It's the kind same of, sort yeah. of thing. It's <laughs> kind like, of, it's, yeah. it, they're both yeah, traumatic yeah, yeah. and horrible. Like it's I didn't understand how it all happened until like the movie was over though. Because you see her before it goes into his story, you see her see a vision of him as a little boy on the bus, but then when we see his story, we see that he was on the bus when it hits Olivia Wilde and then when he actually meets Olivia Cook, he He's there as an adult and turning a corner. So it's yeah. it, it's could not be rendered more confusingly in a way that thinks it's very smart, but is instead just like confusing. I wonder, and then, but, I wonder if I wonder if this is just me playing devil's advocate here. I wonder if there is a good, another better movie than this, by the way. Well, yeah, I'm th- <laughs> well, yeah, I'm thinking like, what if they rearranged this movie? in a different way. I wonder if it would have hit differently because what, as of it right now, they open this movie with like 30 minutes of we gotcha in varying yeah. degrees. Right. And, and a lot of that seems like it's not first act material. It seems like it's being put in a place where it doesn't belong. And that's yeah. why it feels so stilted as fun as it may be. I'm just wondering if there's a way where you start out in the fucking olive fields or you start out in Spain right. and you find a way yeah. to weave this story together in a different sort of way that might make it work better. Well, it would at least give the story room to breathe without having this sort of oppressive feeling of the filmmaker talking to you and telling you how to interpret everything yeah. you're seeing as being very important and very, you know, as part of a thesis, like uh, the filmmaker yeah. laying out his thesis in, you know, in the form of a character speaking her thesis. Again, I find that that character truly being Samuel wild. L. Jackson as Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> no, I mostly mean like Olivia Wilde talking about her goddamn college thesis, but also Samuel L. Jackson yeah. as Samuel L. Jackson. Never, um, ever, ever is it acceptable for in a movie for a character to barge into a house saying, I've got my thesis, like yeah. she does in this movie, well, and like then expound upon what her thesis is going to be. By the yeah. way, no way she got higher than a C- minus on this thesis. Well, they well, even say that in the movie, and then they blame it on her professor being a sexually harassing creep, if you recall, where they're You're literally... Right, and not because her thesis is garbage. <laughs> they like they like write a permission slip for that. Like, oh my god, I oh, that was so frustrating to me. She's like, and that very much mirrored who's like writing a book report but never reads a book like aren't you supposed to have like uh you know a bibliography and such in a thesis and i mean i wouldn't know and after though this movie comes out and the negative reviews happen dan fogelman goes into i at the very least he there was a uh indiewire article he goes aronofsky on it do not be smirch. I'm telling you, you <laughs> I and I are going to have a fight mother, about Aronofsky. Like, we talked. We did an episode on. Uh, I think mother. Aronofsky was entire, not entirely in the right about Mother, but more in the right about Mother than people want to give him credit for. Is all I'm no, saying. No, I mean yes, but I like, love he, Mother. So. He should have just let it go and like say his piece once, but he kept saying his piece and kept saying his piece. But, but what Dan Fogelman did. does come out and like. In the way that it was a little different and that people were like, so explain this fiasco you've just made. Well, and he was like, male film critics don't like uh, romance. Wait, is that basically what he said? He was like, I, I think uh, male film critics are not comfortable with emotion in films, is what he was saying. And so, first of all, that's the dumbest possible thing to say because you are begging every female film critic who didn't like your movie to loudly remind people that they did not like your movie. And a lot of the prominent reviews for this movie were written by women. 
Yes, yes. That I remember like, at the time because I remember a lot of the female film critics who responded to that comment and were like, actually, here's my review. And by yeah. the way, emotion is not the problem with this movie. Right, right. It was, and it was also just very sort of like, you know, butthurt, whatever. And like, I never think that filmmakers are under any obligation to, you know, be happy about your criticism. But the response to that is pretty much always keep it to yourself, grumble to your loved ones, do not take it to the press. There is no winning that game. Absolutely. Especially when it's reductive things like men don't like emotion. Yeah. 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 Also, tell us you've never met a gay man without telling us you've never met a gay man. <laughs> That's yeah, also that. Yeah, people um, yeah, men don't men don't like emotion. There's something else that men don't like either. And that is <laughs> this movie. This movie. <laughs> but I know it I, did I, bring it brings everybody together. Men didn't like it. Women didn't exactly. like it. Straight people didn't like it. Gay it really people does. Didn't you know like who it? does like, bring people together? Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac. He, men love it. Women love it. Everybody loves it. You know who? It's, uh, it's the Diana Ross mahogany joke. Well, you know. <laughs> so here's the thing. So this movie has some some cards stacked against it from the get go because I am not the world's biggest Oscar Isaac fan. I think he is fine. Ooh. I think he Ooh, is uh-huh. fine. And I don't say fine in the he's fine. I say I was gonna say I was gonna be like that. Oh, I think he's fine. I say he's he's <laughs> fine. Like he's a fine yeah. actor. I've never seen him in any film where I was like, oh, this is the next generation. Everybody. Um, that said, the only thing that I could anyone who knows me knows that I have a virulent disdain for Olivia Wilde as an actress. <laughs> I have never been a fan of hers ever since like I was an OC nut. I couldn't stand her character in the OC and that colored her for the rest of her career with me. And every time I see her in something, it it makes me physically ill. And so I director is a totally different thing. Like, you know, well, totally. I mean, you know, we we're a month out of uh Don't worry, darling, I know. directorial effort which I will say absolutely no rumors surrounding it. I don't know like I no, there are no fights, myself, no fights no going on there. I find myself pre-scrambling a defense for her a little bit and maybe I'm wrong to do so, but it does feel like there is a uh amber herding of Olivia Wilde happening in the rumor mill that I don't like the tone of because it feels like a lot of um overly invested Harry Styles fans and yes. also people who are very very too much invested in the cuckolding of Jason Sudeikis which like I could give a shit about like the I don't know there's there's My something whole thing about the go ahead <clears throat> No, no, no. That's basically where I'm at. It's just like, none of that feels to me like proper justification. And it's all like, Dumas was fun for like two weeks, but now Dumas is bad. <laughs> like, it, 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 the, the culture around it is bad. It's very yeah. Perez Hilton in that it's like all gossip, no reported substantiated stuff. And like, none of this means anything florence Pugh doesn't want to post anything. it's fans Who with access to grind this is my thing with Dumois. it's fans with access to grind like i don't need it i'm sorry i don't need it as an actress though olivia wilde billy ray i can't say that i share the full sentiment that you have because i've liked something like drinking buddies however this movie made me fully get it why people really don't like her as an actor 
Because, I mean, like, she gets the worst of it. I do... Uh, there are some things that Oscar Isaac has to say that I'm like, I think it's a miracle that you were able to say that line with any type of conviction. But, like, her whole character, her whole ethos is just, like, so impossible. And I think it's probably going to pull out all of the unlikable qualities of whatever performer is going to play the role that she plays. It's just a lot. I feel it's like I feel like for her role in this film, she really studied Gwyneth Paltrow in Proof. <laughs> and she thought, how can I make this character, this protect, or like, how can I make this character as unlikable as possible? And I think Gwyneth Paltrow is great in Proof, by the way, but that character is not written to be a likable character per se. But I feel like that was Olivia right. Wilde's inspiration. And part of me is like, boy, what if this movie had been made 20 years ago with Gwyneth Paltrow in that role? <laughs> Okay, but the thing about this movie, like, if you say if it had been made 20 years ago, it feels kind of dated in that way. And that, like, we've talked about movies that have, like, learned all the wrong lessons from interconnectedness in movies from the 90s, you know, to where it becomes, like, Crash, where it's just like, isn't it fucking crazy putting these two people together after whatever? And it's like, no, it's just bad. Yeah. Um. That that was one of my like major thoughts that I'm like Dan Fogelman could have feasibly written this script twenty years ago in a dorm room somewhere. I mean, we haven't even mentioned the obsession that this movie has with Time Out of Mind, the Bob Dylan. Oh God, uh, that was how I appreciated this, okay. it because it went into Grammys trivia, and I was like, ooh, the movie has okay. trivia and awards trivia at that. Let's walk up to that, though, because here's what I will say about the Olivia Wilde thing, just to close that loop, is I obviously don't think she's good in this movie, but I feel like I can't imagine hanging up anything on any of the actors in this movie, because like right. I do love Oscar Isaac, and I think this movie made me hate Oscar Isaac, just the sight of him. And I was yeah. like, so the, the writing is clearly working against both of these characters. I think they are both written so obnoxiously, just the most obnoxious couple I've ever seen. And then everything, like all the ephemera around them, just like going to the party and not just dressed like Vincent Vega and Mia Wallace from Pulp Fiction, but like quoting multiple lines of dialogue from the movie to each other and like doing the dance and all of this is just like get if the over movie was self aware at all it would be knowing that it's about the most annoying people at that party <laughs> that's the yeah, thing yeah. and it's the same thing with the bob dylan stuff by this point in 2018 the people who talk to you about and again i have nothing against bob dylan he is as talented and as influential as his reputation is like i'm not here to be like you know who sucks bob dylan like i'm not that guy but what i'm i will say is the cliche of the person being like i'm gonna sit down with you and i'm gonna talk to you about bob dylan for six straight hours has been like well and truly established and why how this movie feels like it's going to get away with making its central romantic uh heroine that obnoxious person about Bob Dylan. And I think he also, Fogelman, thinks he's doing something clever by making that character a woman rather than a man. And that's not that novel to me. Um, I was just shocked, shocked that that a movie decided that it was going to be that overtly like, I'm going to just bore you to tears about time out of mind. 
<laughs> I imagine that there were at least 100 instances when he was writing the script where he stopped and said, oh, that's clever, Dan. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, Good job, I also man. imagine that as he was writing this script, he was listening to Time Out of Mind the whole time. Like, it's very Absolutely. much like we get it. This is a writer trying to put in a music reference that they so clearly love. And uh, it, I mean, uh, it, by the time the movie is done, you have heard Make You Feel My Love a million times. And I it's know. like, it, it couldn't be kind of a more cliche song choice. And it's like, well, especially because by that point, the Adele version of it had become like the Starbucks song of choice for every TV show. And like everywhere. The one thing I will say and the one thing I always say to people when the song Make You Feel My Love comes into a discussion, the best version of this song that nobody ever really ever talks about was on Joan Osborne's, uh, uh, I believe, second album, uh, follow up to everybody feels like she only had that one album, but she had an album called Righteous Love and her she has a cover of that song and it's gorgeous and wonderful and i saw well, her can you go into a six-minute monologue about joan osborne please <laughs> like she's your i love joan osborne I i'll go of, into yeah. a six-minute monologue about garth brooks who sings the definitive version of that song <laughs> he gets name checked you guys in the are movie, just baiting least, yeah. me trying to say that the leah michelle from glee version is the <laughs> there's a we've million really back to into that corner but we've heard all of those versions and we've heard all of those versions wow. a thousand times and it's like i want to hear the beanie feldstein version <laughs> Maybe it'll be added to the Merrily We Roll Sing off. movie that will never be released. Um, uh, that yeah. will never happen, I mean, well, ever. I mean, yeah. um, apparently they just filmed re- the first sequence already. Sure, have they not re- recast Blake Jenner yet? He's not on the IMDb He just got page. in some sort of bad headline. There was just some bad headline about him uh, uh, recently, I feel like. He got in, in some other skirmish or whatever. I don't know. Uh. Poor Richard Linkletter, oh, cool. honestly. Like, Richard Linkletter, innocent. He does not deserve this uh, this uh, trauma. I don't know. Very Wait, ambitious but, project. Um, what I wanted to say also, though, about Time Out of Mind and about Awards Ephemera is that Grammy Awards was a real interesting Grammy Awards. So he wins... I was going to say, I was going to ask you guys if you could name the Record and Song Award winner of that year, but... If you did the research, Joe. Unfortunately, I've got I've I already pulled it up before we started recording, so I know it. But Billy Ray, you can guess. You'll never get it. I'll never get it. So same song, record and, record and uh, song of the year. Uh, this not was nineteen ninety eight year nominee. Nineteen ninety eight. I don't know that I'm going to be able to. Nineteen ninety eight. Hold on. In escape. So pulling from the movie from the music of largely nineteen ninety seven. Mambo number five. <laughs> no, but that would nominee. be amazing. What is it? Okay, how about I read you some of the other nominees? In Record of the Year, uh, <laughs> Paula Cole's Where Have All the Cowboys Gone, which was also nominated for Song of the Year. Paula Cole was a Album of the Year nominee and won Best New Artist, but didn't win the other big categories. Other Record of the Year nominees are Every Day is a Winding Road by Sheryl Crow. Uh, the Timeless Mbop by Hanson. I Believe I Can Fly, which was also a Song of the Year nominee by Arnold. I have a thought. And uh, the other Song of the Year nominees were How Do I Live by Leanne Rimes and also Trisha Yearwood. Uh, Trisha Yearwood, Hive, Rise Written up. by. It is 
Written by Written Diane by... Warren. Now I'm okay. Diane Warren. I think I do know what it is now, and it's what? it's out of. I want to say it's Sunny Came Home. It is Sunny Came Home! It is by Sean Colvin. Listen, it's Sunny Came Home. Yes. Sunny came home. I haven't thought about that song in in twenty four (laughs) years. So, but the other the tidbit about that Grammys was Song of the Year award gets presented. First of all, nobody expected Sean Colvin to win. She was kind of like the one that everybody kind of overlooked. Most people were predicting like Cheryl Crow to win Record of the Year, and for um, basically anybody else, Diane Warren to win Song of the Year, or even R. Kelly. And so Sean Colvin wins both of those. Song of the Year is presented by Erica Badu and Wyclef Jean. And they announce the winner, Sean Colvin, and it's, it's a big surprise. And then by the time they get to Sean Colvin and uh, her co-songwriter uh, get to the stage, uh, Old Dirty Bastard has stormed the stage and is going right, on his monologue about uh, Wu-Tang is for the children and, you know, Puffy's cool, but Wu-Tang is for Wu-Tang forever. Oh, I forgot about Wu-Tang is for the children. I went and bought me an outfit today that costed a lot of money today. You know what I mean? Because I figured that Wu-Tang was going to win. I don't know how y'all see it, but when it comes to the children, Wu-Tang is for the children. We teach the children. You know what I mean? Puffy is good. But Wu-Tang is the best, okay? I want y'all to know that this is ODB and I love you all. And this was also the Grammys where Dylan's performing on stage and the guy jumps up on the stage and writes Soy Bomb on his chest and starts dancing <laughs> around. Soy Bomb! Like, that is the Soy Bomb year. That's mm-hmm. the Soy Bomb yep. year. I forgot all about that. One more thing about that Grammys, uh, aside from ODB and Soy Bomb, this thing that I just, as I'm scrolling through the list of awards and presenters, uh, the winner of Best Rap Solo Performance that year was, yes, Will Smith for Men in Black. That award was presented by Vanessa Williams and, you guessed it, Chris Rock. <gasps> Wow. Fun facts for all. Wild. So yeah. that's when that whole thing started. <laughs> yeah. Not a long yeah. history. A uh, long, long history. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, I thought that was an interesting little tidbit of uh, the 40th annual Grammy Awards. Um, <laughs> let's bop I'm- back into like the Dan Fogelman of it all for a second, though, because like this was his uh, follow up to. My beloved Danny Collins. Um, but up until your then, beloved had... Danny Collins, our precious child, Danny That's Collins. That's true. I guess our shared custody baby, uh, Danny Collins. He had done a lot of screenwriting up until then. We have already covered on this podcast, Crazy Stupid Love, another movie that I that we did not uh, care for. I will say, certainly oh, not at least. Wow. Are you a fan? Are you a fan of Crazy Stupid Love? I am a fan. I mean, the charms of that movie are charming, but it's also another movie where everyone is an alien. I think that's a movie, as I recall, when we covered it, I think I must have mentioned the stark drop-off for me from when it's Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, who I think are 
delightful and lovely and magnetic and and attractive and wonderful in that movie and then like everything else that happens in that movie which i really don't care for the marissa tomei of it all ryan gosling's body in that movie is a work of art oh truly (laughs) truly um ryan gosling referring to his penis as a schwanz had to be an ad lib That's amazing. Uh, Fogelman's writing, writing credits. There's a bunch of animation on there. Cars, Cars 2, Bolt, Tangled. I imagine with the vagaries of uh, the way animation works. Oh, some of these are solo screenplay credits. He's got the solo screenplay credit on Tangled. He's got, well, he's one of like 8 billion screenwriters on Cars, which like makes sense uh, uh, for Cars. Uh, he co-wrote bolt with chris williams so then after crazy stupid love it feels like he's a little bit of a hot commodity screenwriting wise he writes the screenplay for the guilt trip the seth rogan barbara streisand movie the guilt trip that i've still somehow never seen we do an episode on the guilt trip we really do need to do that i will say billy ray have you seen the guilt trip oh yes feelings on it barbara it's barbara it is barbara um it's pretty generic. I felt I felt as let down as I did with like Monster in Law. Oh, no. I will say I'm kind of a cheerleader for Monster in Law in a few ways. I get like it's it's junk food, but to me it's like it's it's very enjoyable. Junk it's your food. favorite Dorito flavor, kind of of that of that genre of beleaguered JLo rom coms that sort of earned her this like terrible reputation as a bad actress. The your wedding planners. Your um, what was that one with Alex O'Loughlin? The backup Break plan? plan. Was that backup plan? Yeah, yeah. Of all of those movies, Monster in Law is my favorite. Um, perhaps well, the best thing about it is, is it 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 got it got Jane Fonda back into the business. That's the yes. thing. That's the thing. Is like it it it's if if for no other reason that uh, it's notable for that. Um, Fogelman also wrote the screenplay for Last Vegas, a movie that I've oh. never seen, but like comes up a lot in like trivia context, just because it's a movie that stars uh, four Oscar winners. Four? Five Oscar winners? No, who's the non... Five Oscar winners, right? Yes, because it's du- Michael Douglas, Robert De Niro, Morgan Freeman, Kevin Klein, and then Mary Steenburgen is one of their love interests. Again, I have not seen the movie, Correct. so I don't know who's. Um, Billy Ray, have you seen it? The finest cinematic genre, three to five old guys hang out somewhere. That genre has been, like, ever-expanding, it seems like. Yes. Every every week I see a new old person in a video. But this feels like the, like, uh, the the, uh, best pedigreed of all of them, Last Vegas. I think that's right. And you've got John Turtletop directing, too, and... He's not the best director, but certainly not a slouch. It's also a catchy title, whereas a lot of those movies are like going in style. You yeah. know, they just don't they don't have the catchy title. So it looks like Steenburgen's character uh, is with Michael Douglas's character by the end of that movie. Okay, good for them. Um, and then yeah, he's a producer on Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, but he has, did not uh, write or direct that one. And oh, then boy. it was Danny Collins. In 2015, he has not directed a film since Life Itself. Um, Surprise! I wonder if he has anything on the old IMDb in the hopper, but uh, 
Let me look really quickly. I mean, I assume that that movie probably just sapped his will to live. I mean, it sapped <laughs> the reception probably did. Yeah, no, there's nothing in the in the announced section of his IMDb. So, um, he's executive producing one of the executive producers on Only Murders in the Building. Although that never really feels like it. Great is, show. It is sold as a Dan Fogelman joint. It doesn't really have those kind of trappings. It's uh, such a mean-spirited just, show, too, in the best way, but in a way that doesn't feel like Dan Fogelman. You know, I was just sitting here thinking that if I were, if this were four years ago, and I was writing a review for Life Itself, and I was thinking about a headline, <laughs> I think my headline would be, this is UG. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there was that headline, because that's good. I, if no one did that, they missed out That's on true. a golden opportunity. That's true. Yeah. Um, oh, apparently he's a screenwriter. Oh, I don't know if that's true. So uh, he seems to have had some sort of involvement in the whenever the upcoming Indiana Jones movie. Um, oh no, the Indiana out. Jones movie no one wants. Um, and I don't know. Well. I don't know if some of us want it. <laughs> They're going to kill that poor old man making I... that movie. That Well, yeah, they might kill him making the movie. That's fair. Harrison Ford needs to just, hasn't he deserved a break? Just like, just like, just leave him alone. Listen, Let him fly his planes. Though Blade that's Runner not, 2049 was great. I will, I, I cannot, I cannot bemoan uh, old Harrison Ford. Of, of the last decade, because it did give us Blade Runner 2049. I'm glad he came back for that one. I love that movie. It also gave us, I think, the underrated Age of Adeline. Uh, you know yes. what? You're I not wrong. Seen it. You're not wrong. Uh, we're all living in the Age of Adeline now. So, uh, uh, you know, act accordingly. I don't know. We're also living about in another Age of the Jetsons, movie. because the other day, uh, yes. Jetson was born, apparently. Yes. Um, so yeah, I don't know how we can sort of, it's tough to kind of sum up Fogelman as a creative force because he does have these sort of two very prominent projects in Life Itself and This Is Us. And then, like, I know there are like people who really loved when he did like Gallivant that like completely atypical as to, you know, compared to the other stuff, uh, musical medieval fantasy series that ABC ran for like half a season. Um, it was pretty fun. It always seemed like a show that I should have watched. And then I think by the time I was going to watch it, it was like, well, it's been canceled. So um, I never did. He also created that show Pitch which was uh, the baseball uh, series on Fox about the female, I think it was like the first woman to play in Major League Baseball. Yeah. Yeah. How do which you I know? saw like an episode of. Um, yeah, I don't know. He's a tough one to sort of get a handle on because it does feel like so much of his creative life force is out there in This Is Us and life itself and you look at it and you're just like 
not for me at least i do i know a lot of people really like this is us and i don't want to negate their experience if you liked that show i i celebrate you but not no i will negate i will will (laughs) gladly negate their experience Um, there's a better show out there called parenthood go watch that instead parenthood was great i really really loved it and that was another one where I was skeptical at the beginning. It's a TV series adaptation of a movie. And I'm always like, are we scraping the bottom of the barrel here? What's going on? And Peter Krause's character on Six Feet Under was my least favorite by quite a large margin. So I think I was holding a little bit of a lingering resentment from that with, you know, I don't want to go watch, you know, Peter Krause as the lead of anything. And... But I sort of overcame that and started watching that show towards the end of its first season. And it really was, you know, one of the one of the really good ones while it was on the air. I really liked that show. I think that's Jason Kadams. I'm a big fan of Jason Me Kadams too. as a showrunner. Absolutely. Yeah. Me too. I've yet to be disappointed with his work. So Yeah. No, I think that's right. Um, we've talked a little bit. Billy Ray, you are not the biggest Oscar Isaac fan. This was his sort of first big post uh, Poe Dameron after the debut as Poe Dameron at least so he his star had his star level had risen quite a bit from where it had been at the sort of uh ex machina what was his most known for movie before he was cast in Star Wars like what did they cast him off of I wonder I mean as far as Lewin Davis oh Lewin Davis that makes sense yeah yeah, and I um, always forget that I like I I that I, I like Lewin Davis a lot less than a lot of people do. A most I violent well. year too was another lead role, but like a lot of it That's was smaller true. character stuff, like Drive, um, Ex Machina, right. where he uh, 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 I, I go into the white space when I picture him dancing with his open. Shirt. I do love him in Ex Machina. Um, He's so. I think that's a genuinely fantastic performance. I think he should have been nominated for an Oscar for that. Uh, If Ex Machina could win an Oscar in the visual effects category, clearly voters were watching that movie. He should have been nominated for supporting actor. I thought he was quite, quite good in that. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting character. It's an interesting arc for his career. I'm interested to see where it goes now that he's passed star wars now that seemingly moon knight was just a one season miniseries and thus far i don't think we've heard anything about him the being character sort dies, of dies right i thought i, heard I don't that. know i didn't watch it i i'm a i'm a marvel fan in general i i mm-hmm. was not hooked on that show and i kind of uh left it alone but He's attached, apparently, to do a Metal Gear Solid movie. Ooh. Hope that's not real. <laughs> He's also apparently... I bet it is. Sorry, go ahead, Billy Ray. No, I was just saying, I bet it is real. I mean, if Chris Pine's doing a Dungeons & Dragons movie, <laughs> Oscar Isaac's going to do a Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> There's also this Barry Levinson uh, project. And, like, Barry Levinson has been sort of off the grid, and if the grid is making uh, movies that... Uh, matter to anyone for a while no shade against barry levinson i suppose unless you're al pacino and you're on hbo (laughs) right that is true that is true his tv stuff has still been uh applicable i'm mostly thinking of stuff like i still am so mad i saw the humbling at my first tiff um (laughs) but anyway he's making a movie 
about the making of the Godfather because uh, apparently the offer couldn't be the only one. But Isaac's cast as Francis Ford Coppola, I don't hate that casting, honestly. Like, I can see That's interesting, yeah. And Jake Gyllenhaal is playing Robert Evans. And I will say, Matthew Good as Robert Evans in The Offer was absolutely the best thing about that show by, like, a mile. And... That feels like we were talking on Twitter a little bit with uh, with some people today about how I think it was with Clay, actually, about how I find movies where Jake Gyllenhaal is supposed to be playing uh, tough guys a lot less interesting than movies where he's playing either soft or weird characters. And like Jake Gyllenhaal as Robert Evans piques my interest. I will say that sounds very fun for him. I really feel like he will dig into that with with zeal and zest. So it's very Levinson's association with this project that Yes, I agree. Makes me do that. I wanna see I wanna see Gyllenhaal go like Oakja unhinged on that thing. I always oh, want to see Gyllenhaal go Oakja unhinged. I, <laughs> I I want to qualify this that like I want to see Oakja unhinged. I don't really need to see any more Nightcrawler unhinged. I think we get yeah it. we got it. I think you and I are in agreement on Nightcrawler, Chris. That I I I I appreciate why people liked him in that movie so much. It was agreed. I always thought that was a little over hyped, a little bit. Well, he. I mean, Nightcrawler is one of those movies, and I'm, I'm, I haven't seen it in, probably since it first came out, but I remember when I watched it thinking, like, this is one of those films that I never need to see again. Right. Yeah. But I enjoy it. Like, there are things that I really like out of it. I think Rene Russo is fabulous. Tremendous. In it, Tremendous. Like, yeah. 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 But, but I don't need to see this again because he's such an unlikable character. Well, I mean, if I ever watch it again, it would just be to sort of like Google-eyed stare at Riz Ahmed, who might be the most gorgeous human on the planet. Riz Ahmed's great but, in that movie, too. I think there's a difference between Gyllenhaal playing that kind of off-his-rocker, unhinged thing as a lead versus a supporting role in Okja, where like I feel like if Okja was just that character... I wouldn't be able to deal with that. And I think there's something about Nightcrawler where that performance starts to feel a little less skillful for being yeah. as centralized as it is. It also, I, I don't think it has like the depth of something like American Psycho, which I think is a fair analog to it. In that like Nightcrawler is a movie that you kind of get everything you're going to get from it on first blush, I yeah. think. And I'm sure that yeah. there's people who yeah. will tell me that I'm wrong, but like, you know, yeah, I, 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 I am inclined to agree with you for that. Um, I would like to see Oscar Isaac go a little crazy, or you know what, just dance again, just dance again, just dance again, Oscar. Take off like, your shirt and dance. Honestly, I yes. mean, what, what did we think of the card counter? I loved it. He's I thought he was one. great in that. He's incredible. Yeah. yeah, that was the first performance of his where I genuinely was like, okay, now I can kind of see. Yeah. Like that was honestly for me that that was the breakthrough performance where I was like, okay, I get what it is that makes you you now. Yeah, the card counter currently on HBO Max, along with maybe nothing else. By the time this airs, oh god, definitely, definitely not Moonshot. Uh, we're recording this on the day that the the uh, HBO. What I, I I mean, I can say we're recording this on the day that the HBO Max news broke, and by the time this comes out. There could be, be more. several more days where that could be applicable. It could but, be my uh, last episode because I could be shipped off to battle with HBO Max <laughs> because they've removed Let Them All Talk. I 
I I might be warbound. I mean, in it, there's part of me that feels like they made this bed when they decided to go all in on direct to streaming with Warner Brothers stuff, but uh, right. I don't know. A lot of good, a lot of good uh, things are becoming collateral damage to this decision, and I don't love collateral it. damage. Is that what you said? The Arnold Schwarzenegger yes. vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody pull up HBO Max. See if it's on HBO Max right uh, now. From collateral beauty to collateral damage, we've we've run, we've the, run game. the gamut. We really, we truly have. Yeah. Um, Chris, you wanted Finish to talk the about collateral trilogy. Well, no, wait, it's collateral, collateral damage, collateral beauty. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right, because like collateral, and then like collateral damage is like the Empire Strikes Back. It's the low point. Everybody feels defeated. Uh, everything's dark, and then collateral like beauty literally has Ewoks in it. Right, exactly. Yep. Collateral beauty yep. is 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 hope for future, and uh, and yes, everything gritty reboot the collateral. <laughs> Stupid. Chris, you wanted to talk about Amazon Studios in 2018 and the year This is the first year Amazon had gotten into the theatrical business. We talked about it before with movies like um, Love and Friendship, The Great Love and Friendship. Um, This is the first year that they started doing their own theatrical distribution, and they have since done a lot less because it didn't go very well for them. This was their first movie i believe that went out um this is at least the first year uh life itself is the widest amazon studios release ever uh and it made only four million dollars total the other movies that they released this year also in the awards race were beautiful boy i'm sure we will eventually do an episode on beautiful boy suspiria we have done an episode on suspiria and cold war which was like at the end of the year, they're kind of surprise awards play because they get that director nomination for Polakowski. Um, Probably, and- I will say, with the exception of Amazon's Oscar success with Manchester by the Sea, Cold War is the other real feather in Amazon's cap when it comes to the Oscars. They worked hard to get that nomination. Several nominations, actually, for Cold War, but specifically the director nomination. I would throw the big sick in there as well. I think you're right. I think that's right. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But the big sick, I believe, was a partnership with Roadside, at least in terms of the theatrical release. It's with Lionsgate. So Roadside did Manchester. Roadside was with Manchester by the Six. Right. Yes. I mean, they were very close to a Best Picture nomination with the big sick. Um, oh, yeah. But, like, people talk about how Amazon is not great at running Emmy campaigns outside of Maisel, but, like, they haven't had much Oscar success either. And kind of when they – some of their biggest successes are in all of their partnerships with people. But I do think that Cold War performance was – I wonder how much further they could have taken it if they'd had more time. It's not a movie mm. I particularly like. Um, but Well, I, I think, I would say that I think life itself, I think, is 50% of what I would call the decline of Amazon Studios' like Oscar hopefulness. I would say the second part of that was the equally ill-advised The Goldfinch. Yes, yes, which was a partnership with Warner Brothers. Yes, which was also the other film that it was like, oh, this is going to be a big Oscar movie, blah, blah, blah. Have y'all covered The Goldfinch yet? Not yet. Not yet. I keep pushing for it, and Chris keeps pushing us away. I cannot watch that movie again. (laughs) And I love the book. I love the book. It's a a head-scratcher. 
I didn't hate it as much as everybody hated it. I definitely don't think it's a very good movie, but I feel like there are uh, there are parts of it that I like. One of which Chris takes uh, a huge exception to, but uh, huge exception. Uh, I do like Finn Wolfhard in that movie, but anyway, we will talk about it bad in our actor, eventual actor. Goldfinch episode. Um, yeah, I think. I mean. We've talked about Amazon kind of a lot on this podcast, which is no surprise since they've got a lot of misses. They've got a I'm trying to think of what they've got coming up next. Catherine called Birdie is playing at TIFF, which is a probably co-production not an awards w- thing, but they are doing a theatrical release. Right. I mean, and there probably won't be much more Amazon now that they bought MGM, and MGM not only has uh you know their output that like united artists is doing right but there's also they've rebooted orion which looks to be their more like like smaller awardsy movies like they'll be releasing till i believe they're releasing women talking um so they've also got that delightful which i actually think it is delightful that delightful gay harry styles movie coming out that's what i was gonna say this is like it seems like it could be the last officially amazon studios movie um which that movie just kind of looks like wallpaper to me but i'm excited to see this film i've seen this film i can say that it is much better than wallpaper okay all right, much better than wallpaper. That makes I've spoken me... to someone else who has seen it, and uh, 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 I, I shan't speak for them. <laughs> um, and then, of course, they're this week they're dropping thirteen lives. Ron Howard. Well, I wanted lives. to mention that because, like Chris, you mentioned the the United Artists of it all, and like United Artists is actually having a really like interesting renaissance lately. Fascinating run. Their uh, lineup this year is fascinating and even last year with like house of gucci and whatnot and um 13 lives though which is a ron howard movie that is based on true events that was in a what i thought was fairly compelling documentary last year that i'm still kind of surprised did not make the oscar uh nominee list i know chris you feel differently um I mean, I like the movie less, but I think the documentary, the reason why that movie wasn't nominated is because those, it was made by the people who had already won. And like that branch has a history of, even if you have another successful lauded documentary, if you won, they're not going to nominate you again. The Rescue, which was made by the people who did Free Solo. Yeah. Um, 13 Lives, though, it is shocking to me how little promotion I've seen for this movie and how little discussion there's this movie again i want to get away from using the phrase doesn't exist because i think we've overused it but like truly 13 lives is doesn't exist to a shocking degree like i was i did not really believe in this as a oscar prospect i always did bring it up in the conversations just because i feel like it's you know it's a ron howard movie it is it has a lot of the ingredients there were reports of it having like these it had test screenings that performed like through the roof, like MGM's best test screening ever or whatever. And that they moved it from a spring release to November, which like when that, when those reports came out, it was like, Oh, we know what this means. They're going to push this movie, blah, 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 blah. blah. And then for them to basically fully retreat from, I believe United artists to Amazon 
and like basically dump it. It apparently has a theatrical release, but is also I'm sure it's getting some kind of theatrical release. It can, like, it the it, it, theatrical release was this past weekend. I mean, yeah, it's we're already past it. here, and I get yeah. Amazon movies and theaters here, so yeah, yeah. And then it drops on the fifth, so like it got one week of the- theatrical. It played in Seattle here in a couple of places. I of course didn't get out to see it in the theaters, but um, I mean, I thought the same thing. This is this is a film that's been on my radar for a while now in terms of like Oscars for 2022, and then I literally was just sc- scrolling online one day and I saw this. They, there was a trailer ad for Thirteen Lives coming o- August fifth, and I was like, what? Like, I mean, it's just rare that a Ron Howard film gets dropped like this. It's also not a very good trailer. I remember when I watched the trailer and I was like, there is no forward momentum to this. Like, I don't understand what the, like, what the thrust of this trailer is. And like, again, it's an incredibly compelling, true story that has Colin Farrell and Viggo Mortensen in it, among other people. Like, like, I... You've got some ingredients in here, and I thought that trailer was just so flat to me. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm going to be watching it at home, but it's not going to get my movie theater dollars. Yeah. It's supposed to be like two and a half hours long. Yeah. yeah. That's the other thing. Which also, I mean, like, maybe is part of the reason why they're not taking it to theaters, but... Also, I feel like, you know, and I, I feel like sometimes Ron Howard gets a little too too dumped on as a... As an artist, I think he's had Agreed. Uh, more, you know, more high points than people are willing to give him credit for. He's not the director that I would go to for something where you feel like a lot of that story is going to depend on the kind of claustrophobic uh, environs of, you know, this uh, this flooding cave and whatnot. I don't you think you want the green grass version of that movie. Yes, actually, that's a very good that's a very good uh, uh, name to drop there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, what else do we want to talk about here, Chris? There's so much to get into. Uh, Amazon also had Peterloo that year, and then like pushed it. Didn't off do anything with it. God, or Peterloo. Peterloo is another movie we could Peterloo's talk about. Great. Peterloo needs a reassessment because it's a good movie, and it kind of got dogged on. I really liked that movie. The rumors that it got uh, rejected by Cannes, I think, kind of tainted that movie, whether or not that's true. But, like, it's a good movie. It's not I a mean, bad yeah. movie. It's a good We're, movie. Yeah, I would say I would say it's definitely not a bad movie. I would say I I, I don't know that I've ever seen a Mike Lee film that I don't enjoy, frankly. Right. Um, right. So, I mean, like, even, like, lesser Mike Lee is better than most of the garbage out there. And, um, you know, this was totally Cannes' loss. Yeah. Well, and it's also like I think part of the ho hum reception and like even the build up to that movie is like people like talked themselves into what they thought a Mike Lee movie was and this not being it made them not want to see it kind of and I yeah. I don't necessarily get that. Do we want to talk about the blacklist, Chris? This was a blacklist script from 2016. 2016. Ooh. What I mean, else? This seems like a back. This seems like a black. It does script. kind of like no, no. Again, no shade intended. There's, I. The blacklist is one of those things where I think for a while there was some kind of uh, people treated the blacklist like a little bit of a clearinghouse for like, well, if it was a blacklist script, and now I feel like we've all sort of settled into this, uh, you know, realization that like the blacklist runs the gamut between great movies 
and terrible movies and kind of everything in between. And if you look at... And sometimes by the time that the Blacklist is actually published, some of the movies that are on there are already in production, too. Right, so. yeah. right. But so the 2016 Blacklist is an interesting one to get into because I really do feel like, again, you know, runs the gamut from uh, Bad Education, the Corey Finley movie, uh, script by Mike Makowski, eventually ends up on HBO to uh, many a chagrin because by the my thing with my thing with indie movies going to TV these days, especially ones that I think are good enough to get awards pushes and that maybe 15 years ago could have gotten say Hugh Jackman a push and best actor for Bad Education, say good luck to you, Leo Grand, getting a best actress push for Emma Thompson, is a lot of people are really like, well, they can win Emmys instead of Oscars, and what's the difference, and blah, blah, And they're not going to win Emmys. never materialize. They're not going to win Emmys, because we are living in the golden age of miniseries right now, and nothing, made-for-TV movies can't compete with those. They're not buzzy enough, they don't exist in the popular imagination, the way that miniseries do. And you looked at it, you know, Emma Thompson, by the time the Emmy nominations come out next year, is going to be less than an afterthought. And it's a shame and it's a crime because, like, that is a performance well, that deserved to get an art house platform release and then a good faith insurgent campaign at the end of the year where she either makes it and we cheer like when Charlotte Rampling got nominated for 45 years or she doesn't get it and we all scream bloody murder and we hiss at awards voters for like saving Mr. Banks the thing I think part of that is because like with like all of the blurred lines between uh, streaming and TV what it does for an actual made for TV movie where there's not an episodic structure to it is that even even if it's subconscious, people view it as, well, it's not good enough for it to have been in theaters. And people still think of that as, like, some emblem of quality. But at the same time, these streaming platforms are trying to build up a sense of quality in, like, a, we've talked about this before, where, like, my thing with the Searchlight Hulu thing is, like, they're tr- yeah. it's a branding thing. They're trying to, you know, build the Hulu brand to be, like, well, quality stuff is here. Um yeah, we haven't really shaken out to the new normal yet. And maybe it's, we're just yeah. going through growing pains and we will eventually arrive at an equilibrium again, but we're not there yet. And I think there are movies like Bad Education is one of the ones that kind of gets, you know, uh, lost in the shuffle there. And The Tale with Laura Dern. Yes, great, example. great Absolutely. example, Billy Ray. Yes. Like, well, you know, at a HBO point had sold time, it as I mean, like when they bought it, they were like, this is a subject matter that people are going to feel more comfortable watching at home. But then when they actually released it on HBO, they didn't promote it. Like, yeah. And if there was ever, a, I mean, that would have been an, e- that should have been an easy nomination for Laura Dern in that film. Yeah. Also, I think that's such a fallacy too. this idea that like this type of story is easier to absorb watching it at home no it's not because the second you feel uncomfortable with something you have the option of changing the channel or looking at your phone or whatever like there is is an easier thing to do than to leave a theater sometimes when i praise a movie theater it sounds like i am praising a jail cell but it does give (laughs) like it does sort of lock you in there for at least a little bit it makes the barrier for turning away and diverting your attention a lot 
higher. You either have to be a rude asshole or you have to be willing to get up out of your seat and walk out. And I think and lose your money and lose right, and lose your money. Right. And that sense of captivity a little bit does encourage the viewer to take more chances. And I think so I think that the exact opposite would have been true for the tale. I think a, a art house theater is the only place you want to debut that movie. But anyway, all of this to say in summation that life itself should have just been dumped onto the Amazon platform <laughs> yes. rather than being their widest fucking release they've ever done. Uh, other 2016 blacklist movies will sort of go through these a little bit quicker. Um, Hotel Artemis, which uh, is weird, but I'm kind of glad that I saw it. Uh, the Jodie Foster movie. Yeah. Um, I only know of that movie as the surly production photo of Jodie Foster looking skeptically. Sure. Uh, I, Tanya, a big Oscar success there. So again, we're running the gamut, right? Hotel Artemis didn't come to much. I, Tanya was a huge Oscar success. Late Night, which was a, a big Sundance kind yeah. of a moment with uh, for Mindy Kaling and uh, aforementioned Emma Thompson. Um, the Post, My Beloved... Uh, Spielberg uh, movie, The Post, that I am a ride or die for. That was a script by Liz Hanna and Josh Singer. Roman J. Israel Esquire, a movie, Chris, I Good know movie. you and I. That is the Dan Gilroy movie that I go to bat for, is Roman J. Israel Esquire. And of course, I mean, who could forget where we all were when Free Guy finally made it oh, from God. the blacklist to uh, to movie theaters. For as much as that's the movie that broke me from being an Oscar completist. For as much as all of the people who dumped on Taika Waititi for uh, Thor: Love and Thunder, and I am not a fan of Thor: Love and Thunder, but like it's amazing to me that he escaped Free Guy unscathed because he is so fucking obnoxious in Free Guy. I kind of can't take it, and. I did watch that movie because I was an Oscar completist, and I had to. Uh, I'm a I'm a loyal soldier when I do my rankings for uh, for all the Oscar movies. But I, I have you not get paid. I have not seen Free Guy, but I've been tempted to watch it a couple of times just for my boy Steve Harrington. Um, I do love him, and he's honestly he's a charming cutie in that Joe Keery. God love him. Um, but yeah, not worth seeing Free Guy for his performance. I will say that. I'll just rewatch Spree. That'll that'll say that'll say that'll <laughs> tide me over. That's actually a, re- a really fun movie. Wait, which one is Spree? Spree's the one that Joe Keery stars in. He plays this Uber driver who is like trying to like boost his social media, so he's like killing right. all these people in his Uber and like filming it, and like it's actually really good. And he's really like really given a great performance. Uh, seeing the the ads for that one, I, it reminded me a little bit of what was the Dave Franco Emma Roberts movie. Pulse. Pulse. I really, really enjoyed that movie. That was a movie I saw in the theaters and had a very, very good time with. Uh, It made me think of Pulse. Yeah, Pulse was wild. Yeah. Uh, All right. So that was the 2016 Blacklist. An interesting little list of movies. Um, What else do we got, Chris? Uh, One tidbit. (laughs) The day this premiered at TIFF, the other premieres. This is like the most this had Oscar buzz day <laughs> history, maybe. Yeah. Other titles that premiered on the same day at this TIFF festival. Widows, our beloved Widows. Yes. We've done an episode on Widows. 
Ben is back. He's back, you guys. Who's that? That's Ben, and he is back. And he is back. Uh, Backstreet's back, and so is Ben. (laughs) The front runner. (laughs) Forgotten the day after it premiered. The front runner. I keep thinking, and I keep forgetting to mention this to you, that we really do need to do the front runner soon. I've still not seen the We should do it this year for Hugh Jackman, obviously. Yes, good point. Yes, we should. Yeah. Um, So... Coming soon, the front runner. Uh, and the Sisters Brothers, a movie that I was like, I don't want to see this. And then I saw it and I liked it. Nightcrawler reunion. Uh, I, uh, Sisters Brothers. True. I love Sisters Brothers. Uh, that's one of my probably favorite films of the last few years. It's a good movie. Yeah, I think it's a, a really underrated film. But yeah, all of those films premiering on the same day uh, is sort of insane because, like you said, they were all films. That had the noblest of expectations. Yep. And they all fell flat. Yep. Yeah. It's kind Every of Every single goddamn one of them. A kind of iffy tiff year, because this is also the year that Green Book wins the Ooh. People's Choice Award on its way to Best Picture. The thing about that tiff was, the biggest sensation there, at least in our experience, was not a tiff premiere. That was The Star is Born sort of right. coursing through everybody's veins after it premiered. It was a Venice premiere, right? Yes. Uh, Lady yeah, Gaga so, on the boat. You right. Know, that's so triumphant. Right, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the thing I most remember from 2018 TIFF is just like everybody could not wait to see Star is Born. And then that being, and Roma, but like Roma was playing, right. I think, every day of the festival after it premiered. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um. A couple other things I'm sort of dipping into my notes here as I look at it. Obviously, we need to mention, especially for our purposes, um, this, for all of Dan Fogelman's sins in this movie, he does give Annette Benning a chance to, I don't know her, Natalie Portman uh, in this movie, which, of course, <laughs> Portman famously wins her Oscar for Black Swan uh, over... Annette Benning's acclaimed performance in The Kids Are Alright. I did feel like maybe that was a little bit of catharsis for Annette, that she got to say, I don't know who that is, when he mentions Natalie Portman. Um, what else as I go through this? Unreliable narrator, hit by buses. <laughs> ba, ba, ba. Did we mention the buses? I mean, I feel like we've been really negligent in discussing the buses um, because listeners I mean, the- take a shot, go back, re-listen to the episode, take a shot every time we mention the buses, <laughs> pickle your liver. Yeah, like this guy's the guy who wrote the cars, and so now he was like, "I want to write about buses," and I'm like, <laughs> "Well, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. You're upgrading. Next, he's going to be writing about yachts." Then it's going to be like fucking space stations. Like Dan Fogelman knows where his career is headed. <laughs> oh, can we talk about what I thought was the actual most objectionable uh, part of the movie, which is so young little Rodrigo grows up, becomes cute, uh, starts dating around in New York City, starts his dating girlfriend, starts dating the most horrendous objectionable long island white girl stereotype like straw man uh you know caricature of a person in this film and at some point she what we eventually find out through the worst twist in this movie which was a twist predicated on an april fool's joke the lowest form of 
anything, as far as I'm concerned, an April Fool's joke. But before that, she says she's pregnant. She's being awful about it. It's going to ruin his life. He's sort of, it's dawning on him how much this is going to be terrible. He's going to be anchored to this awful uh, uh, person or, you know, or she's going to have to have an abortion and, and, and something is going to happen with this that is going to alter the course of his life forever. She's reaching that telltale street curb. She's backing into traffic and he stops her from getting hit by a car, even though her getting killed by an oncoming bus would have been good for him. But the fact that he stops her is painted as this act of like true virtue and selflessness. And like, what a good person. Cause he didn't this allow this person earlier when I was saying there were points of the movie where I was like, where's the bus? Can we get another yeah. bus? But I'm just like, but the fact that the movie tries to make it this like noble act that he didn't allow this terrible person, this person who was inconvenient to his life to get hit by a bus. And I'm just like, this movie is so fucked. <laughs> and look, I'm I'm a chi- I'm a childish idiot, so I just love the fact that her name is Sherry Dickstein. Sherry Dickstein. Oh God, <laughs> horrible caricature of a person. Oh Sherry Dickstein. Oh Sherry. Di- Come back to the five and dime, Sherry Dickstein. Sherry Dickstein. <laughs> Can I also say I don't? I'm going to compare this movie to a better movie, and it's not like this movie reminded me of it, but there are over the top. Not necessarily. <laughs> yes, it reminds, reminds me of Over the Top. Um, no, especially watching the trailer. I feel like there was parts of this movie that were aspiring to, like, this movie wants in some ways what Away We Go has in that kind of um, poetry of two self-involved, you know, people who uh, I don't want, I guess, like, not necessarily millennials, but you know what I mean? Sort of like self-involved, young, neurotic, hip people looking for a way to imbue their lives with meaning or whatever. And a lot of people find a way we go very annoying. And I guess I understand it. But I really love that movie. And a way we go is the kind of movie that takes a lot of bullshittiness and still allows me to invest in it and enjoy it. And life itself would do well to reach that level of you know, success that away. So what you're saying is, is that life itself would be a lot better if Sam Mendes had directed it. I mean, yes, like that is true that I know people, you know, kind of dump on Sam Mendes sometimes, but I think that's definitely true. Yeah. I think, I think he's a great filmmaker. We'll see what we get of empire of light this year. I'm excited for that movie. I just took a list of things that are said in this movie. That come out of characters' mouths. God. As if these are things that are either acceptable for us as an audience to actually have to be subjected to hearing, and things that Dan Fogelman thinks are normal things that a normal person would say. Gay like Billy on the street gay. God, I forgot about that. Homophobic. Thank you, Dan Fogelman. Um... An intensity usually reserved for stalkers is how a character is described. I'm Bob Dylan. You're not. Eat a dick. Actual line of dialogue that Dan Fogelman thought was smart to write. I don't know if I'm equipped to be loved this much. That was the big one. That was the big line normal they thought thing was going to be. a normal person to say. They wanted normal. that to be the you complete me 
Um, you had me at hello. Like that Equipped. was. Yeah. Equipped. It just rolls off the tongue. Like it, <laughs> you had me at hello. No catchy line from a movie is going to use the word equipped. But it's also insane to say I don't know if I'm equipped to be loved this much. Okay. Um, selfishly speaking, I'm so glad your parents are dead. Honestly, at that point I stopped Jean's, taking these notes. And that Jean was maybe Smart, fifteen minutes into the movie. Gene Smart kind of nails that line, though. I will say she kind of she serves on that. Listen, if Miss Smart is going to do one thing, she's going to nail a line even when it's in a bad script. Yeah. Be it a Dan Fogelman motion picture or a television series I do not care for. Ooh. I feel, like, I feel like I would be remiss not to quote a piece of dialogue that is delivered in this film. I'm going to try to do it with the most gravitas that I can. Give me a second here. Which also right. features an unnecessary slur. I crave a happy life, Grandpa. I have an almost desperate craving for stability and happiness, the way fat people crave chocolate, or lost hikers crave rescue. I want to live a big, great, fantastical life, but I'm concerned that the tragedy that seems to follow me, the tragedy that birthed me, will prevent that from ever happening, and I don't know if I can withstand another body blow like this. That's how people talk. That's how people talk. And and way to slide people in say that, things that, like that. Way to shame some fat people in there too, Dan Fogel. I mean, I mean, and then and then after all that bullshit, once again, he writes himself a trap door into that where it's like, but that's not what she really said. That's what she (coughs) meant to say. What she really said was something else. It's like stand by the courage of your horrendously overwritten convictions. Yep. That stupid scene where it's like, oh, but I'm going to do it again. Oh but I'm going to do it again and I'm going to do it again. And really all that these two people said to each other was like, hi, hi, let's go get ice cream or whatever the fuck happens in that scene. But it's all this like cleverly in your head person. Also. And meanwhile, Mandy Patinkin is acting the shit out of that scene to like no avail, but like, God bless him. I wonder, I have concerns if Samuel L. Jackson has ever understood what he was doing when he were, when he recorded. Oh my God. He thought he was in not. a chase commercial. <laughs> yeah. I, I still think he has, if you were to say, hey, I loved what you did in life itself, I have a feeling that 99% chance he'd be like, what's that? He has absolutely no idea what you mean. No, absolutely right. not. No clue. Right. And then you say, well, oh, you know, where you played yourself and his brain would probably just collapse in on itself. He did he did his little bits of line lines of dialogue and looked into the camera and said what's in your wallet and Dan Fogelman said that's not in my script. <laughs> my script is perfect. Say what's in the script. And he's like cut it out. Cut it out, motherfucker. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I have looks to say like about it. It's shot itself. like a Capital One commercial. I mean, it kind of <laughs> is. Uh, big ups to Capital One commercials. I've got a friend in a, a Capital One commercial right now that gets played like every like 50 times a day. I think it's probably like paying for the rest of his life. There are certain sport of sporting events that I will watch where like every third ad is a Capital One ad. Like they really do shell out for those big sporting events. So, yeah, I get it. I understand. The last thing I would want to say, we've not brought up that this whole plot is the elaborate novel, nonfiction novel, whatever book from an author 
who is the grandchild of Olivia Wilde and Oscar yes. Isaac, the child of Olivia Cook and I forget that actress name. I apologize. And it's just so like Dan Fogelman thinks that her book is so good. And it's like, this book is a piece of shit. It is like, I don't know that that whole twist made me mad because most of the movie, when like you hear her talking, it's like, who's this woman? Yeah. And we're supposed to care about her in like this final bit of the movie. And it's like, you can't introduce characters that we're supposed to have an emotional attachment to at the very end of your movie, Dan Fogelman. Yeah, a lot of the reviews that I read, yeah, a lot of the reviews that I read were dunking on the movie for uh, imagining that decades into the future there would still be physical bookstores that exist <laughs> anywhere <laughs> that, that that anybody would be able to to read an excerpt at, and I thought that was kind of funny. I mean, the Darkly real twist funny. here would have been the real twist would have been here is like at the end it reveals the writer and it's actually like VC Andrews. <laughs> or, or Daniel Steele, and it's or like, it reveals the end of it, and she's actually doing her book reading on Zoom because it's happening during COVID. Yes, yeah, right. Yes, that's the only thing this movie didn't have in it that it probably would have if it was made today. Was COVID. there would have been so much COVID tragedy in it? Like, oh, Mandy Patinkin and Gene Smart would only be seen on on Zoom. Yeah, yep, yep, totally. Small Should we favors. move on to the IMDb game? Yeah, oh, games. I like games. We Joe, like games. tell our listeners what the IMDb game is. Yeah, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four <laughs> titles that IMDb says they're most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue, and if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. I play this game a lot with my cinephile crew, so I am prepared. Nice. Fantastic. We love to hear uh, preparation in play. Uh, but Billy Ray, as our guest, you are in the position to say if you want to be a guesser or a giver first and who you're going to be guessing or giving to from, etc. I, I, I'll guess first. Okay. Who would you like to challenge you? Oh, um... You, I, I'm, you know what? I feel like, I feel like today I want Joe to challenge me. All right. So then you will be giving to me and I will be giving to Joe. Okay. All right. So Billy Ray, we have mentioned in this podcast several times how much Chris and I really enjoyed the movie Danny Collins. That film stars the great Al Pacino. We've somehow never done Al Pacino for the IMDb game. So... Go for it. Wow. Okay. Um, are they all theatrical releases? They are all theatrical releases. No television, no voice performance. Okay. Well, obviously The Godfather. Correct. The Godfather. I would say obviously Dog Day Afternoon. Correct. Dog Day Afternoon. Hmm. How many, how many wrong answers do I get? Uh, two after two, yeah. After two, we give you the years, and then the clues come. Okay, so I'll say Scarface, not Scarface. Okay, Straight then Serpico, then Serpico, Serpico. Yes, Serpico okay. is there. So that's three of four. Oh, okay. Um. Well, now, 
So this is a tough one. So there's like three that are in my head. There's Once Upon a Time in I'm not giving you the answer right now, but so there's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but he has such a small role in that, but I know people love that film. What a picture. There's Sin of a Woman, and then there's and then there's also the one that I I'm the first one that I immediately jumped to is Dick Tracy. But I don't I, I, I always feel like people I love that film disproportionately more than other people. Um that said, so it was a really it is a pretty popular film. I, I I think I will say Dick Tracy. You are correct. It is Dick Tracy. Well oh, done. I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah. Good, hey, good job, IMDb. I also Dick love Dick there. Tracy. And when I pulled this up, I was like, I wonder if he'll get caught up on Dick Tracy. I'm kind of surprised that Godfather Two is not there, just because that feels like the one that is. It's the franchise thing. Yeah. Also, Son of a Woman, because, again, IMDb does tend to honor Oscar success, but that is a strong IMDb for, for Pacino. I've never seen Serpico. That's always been on my list of movies that I need to see at some point. Dick Tracy, I always incorrectly remember as his other nomination the year that he won, and it's nope. not... It's, it's Glenn um, Gary Glenn Ross Larry you're thinking Glenn of. Ross, which he's also great yeah. in. But like Dick yeah. Tracy was, I think, the year before. And it's like that's at the point where overdue Al Pacino was with Oscar, that yep. they almost gave him an Oscar for Dick Tracy. There was actually Pesci Pesci won pretty much all of the precursors that year, and still there were people being like, I think Pacino might win it because it's the career, you know, the career achievement. Exactly. And that was he yeah, was probably two years. second place. I feel like he yeah, won a critics award or something for that movie. I mean, he's so much fun in that movie. Like honestly, yeah, he's he's, yeah. he's, a oh, trip. he's he's, he's insanely good in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in '92, when you mentioned he's nominated for both *Son of a Woman* and *Glenn Gary Glenn Ross*, there were people who were like, "That was back when like the received wisdom was if you get nominated in both categories, you usually win in supporting because that was like." the Jessica Lang thing. And um, I can't remember who else was the example of that, but a lot of people thought, well, they'll give it to Denzel and best actor. And then Pacino will win for Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, which as much as a lot of people kind of dump on scent of a woman, even though I think that is makes perfect sense as an Oscar winning performance. It's so huge, but it's like, it really is just like Pacino going full Pacino. Um, it would be weird if his Oscar was for Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, even though I think that's a good performance. Right? Probably a movie people talk about even less than Dick Tracy. Well, even when you do, though, like he's not the th- he's not in the top three of things I think of when I think of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Do you know what I no, mean? You, my brain. Or I frankly, mean, Dick Tracy and Dick Tracy rules. Uh, when I think of Glengarry Glenn Ross, the only thing I think of is Jack Lemon, who is giving like a god level performance. Lemon's so good. I mean, he when did the man not give a god level performance? Yeah. Like, yeah, he is so good in that. Yeah, and, he I is. mean, just and still, even now, it's like it's just kinetic to watch him. And he inspired uh, one of my favorite side Simpsons characters, which is uh, Gil. <laughs> yeah, good old Gil. Good got old that, Gil. Got that hot plate. Um, all right, so Billy Ray, you are going to quiz Chris. Okay, Chris. All so right. the the actor I'm quizzing you with was also in the beloved Danny Collins, <gasps> Jennifer Gardner. Oh, okay. How much TV? One. Alias. Correct. 
The question is, do I think Daredevil is there or do I think Elektra is there? So I'm going to sandwich that for a minute and I'm going to say Juno. Correct. Should have been nominated for an Oscar. Probably should have won the Oscar for that. She's that The whole high baby moment is just like it's a beautiful steak. Um, uh, What a meal. Um, Okay. I'm going to guess that it's Electra. Incorrect. Okay. Fuck. Daredevil. Correct. Okay. Um So I have one more and I also have another wrong answer. It's not that movie Butter, but I'm trying to think <laughs> of lead roles that she's had. I don't think Catch and Release is there. Oh, is it 13 going on 30? It is 13. There we going go. On 30. Boom. It's funny that you got to butter and catch and release before you thought of 13 going on. I am who I am, Joe Reed. (laughs) Let me be. Also, if you've picked somebody from Danny Collins to give to me, I am going to hoot and holler. (laughs) I wish I had. I wish I had. I went uh, being myself, being the person that I am. I went a more convoluted route. Um, I was thinking a lot about Annette Bening in this movie. Uh how She plays a psychiatrist. And I wondered if Annette Bening has ever had a psychiatrist in another movie. We have covered that movie. It was Running with Scissors. Her psychiatrist was played by Brian Cox. Oh, okay. Brian Cox. Any television. television. One television. It's got to be Succession. Yes. Okay. I wish that I could do an impersonation of Shiv going, well, would you have the super majority? And then he just like gibberishes back at her. It's. Well, no, because you need a super majority. No, 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 because I need a super majority. What a fantastic episode of television. I hope he wins the Emmy. I do too. Uh, I think Jeremy Strong is a very, very good actor, and I'm glad he won the Emmy two years ago, but I do want Brian Cox to have an Emmy for that role. I mean, the finest yeah. performance on television in the past season is Matthew McFadden in Succession. Yeah, yeah. But different category. Yeah. So, um, Although if Kieran Culkin wins, I will not be sad, because Kieran Culkin rules on that show. Anyway. Um, all right, Brian Cox. The thing about Brian Cox with IMDb Game is, it's a lot of supporting roles around the same level of prominence and it's really hard to sift through and pick them which is why i'm gonna go out on a limb and say that his one big acclaimed lead role that got like precursor awards even though it's very small is on there so i'm gonna guess lie a movie i haven't seen but no it's incorrect i mean it's not a fun movie because it is about i mean like a, a pedophile, but he's very good in it. Um, baby Paul Dano. Yeah, baby Paul Dano is right. Um, okay, so not LIE. All right, so where are we going with Brian Cox then? We are going for. Huh. X2 X Men United. Correct. All right. The best X Men movie. Um,. What else do we have? I don't disagree. I don't disagree with that statement. It's so Can we good. talk about how the poster for X2 on um that IMDb uses at least doesn't have the title X2 in it, but this movie apparently came out on 
May or June 2nd. And the two yeah. from the date is in the middle of the X. So that's well, how it's that X2. title got changed late in the game. Like that was called it was X-Men 2 and then it was just X2. And the X-Men United part didn't get added to it until like very soon before it got released, as far as I remember. Um, My favorite X-Men movie, X-Men United States of Terror. <laughs> or Leland. Uh, Tony Collette plays all the X-Men. Yes, that's <laughs> All right. Uh, so I have two? Two movies, only one wrong guess. Okay. Um, I'm just going to guess it because I love his performance in it so much, even though he's barely in it. Uh, adaptation. Adaptation is correct. I partly picked this because I knew it would make you happy. Fuck, yes. He's so good. He's just got one scene in that movie. Just fucking barking. Oh my God. He's so good. God help you if you put voiceover and narration. He really could have yelled at Dan Fogelman, honestly. Um, I mean, that's what Dan Fogelman needed. He needed Robert McKee's yep, screenwriter. He back. sure did. Uh, Dan Fogelman, tell us you haven't seen Adaptation without telling us you haven't seen Adaptation. All right. Last guess. I'm going to say 25th Hour incorrect though that's a great guess and a great brian cox performance again the fact that within the span of like two years he was in 25th hour adaptation x-men united the ring all like within like 18 months of each other even maybe less than that is tremendous what a run what a run of great supporting performances you're missing one film in that run Wait, and it's from the year two thousand four. Troy, Troy, that's insane. As Agamemnon in Troy. Wait, what's the one from that run I'm missing, Billy Ray? That's what I. Oh, that's what that was the one. Okay, a movie that Brian Cox is fully just cast in because he's like a bear. Like, why is he Agamemnon? Brian Cox and Brendan Gleeson playing big, gruff, mean brothers in that movie is actually kind of amazing casting. There should be several movies where they pay, play big, gruff, mean brothers. That movie I is am... cast pretty well, actually, because Brad Pitt, I think, is perfectly yeah. cast, and Orlando Bloom is also perfectly cast. I think that's not a good movie, but, like, I would watch it if it was on TV right now. I fuck it, with Troy. I, I would watch Troy. It's a shame that, I mean, I would have expected maybe even Zodiac to make a an appearance. He's also phenomenal in that, that movie. Yeah. But um, my, the one I love him in is the movie Red, where he actually has a lead role. It's the Lucky McKee movie with him and Tom Sizemore. Oh, um, I've never seen. His, yeah, they kill his dog and he goes apeshit. Fantastic. And uh, it's actually, I think it's actually a really, really good performance from him and a really cool movie. He's great. I love Brian Cox. God, he really is. Chris, the day that I informed you that Brian Cox was doing voiceover for McDonald's commercials and had been doing so for like two years, and it was the first time. I heard it ever... for the first time, and his off key ba da ba 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 is. Yep. It's iconic. Fuel that makes me it's uh, get up genuinely iconic brian cox just talking about like six days of the week when you steal a fry from your friend they can say hey i paid for those but on free fries friday they can't free fries friday at mcdonald's quarter pounder with cheese and like mcnuggets <laughs> or whatever in the most disinterested tone it's fantastic <laughs> he's and the opposite but He's the antithesis of Ving Rhames in the Arby's commercials. He was so excited. <laughs> we have the meat. It's true. <laughs> oh my and Brian God. Cox is like, I don't give a shit if we have the meats. Fantastic. All right. I think that is our episode. Billy Ray, 
This was a joy. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was a wa- treat. It was a treat. Thank you for dealing with my internet issues. Oh, oh of course. I mean, we've had them ourselves. We have. Um, if you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Billy Ray, tell our listeners where they can find more of you if you wish to be found. Sure, I'm all over the socials at Billy Ray Bruton, or you can find me at Incinerator Pod, and you'll you'll figure out something that I'm doing if you go to one of those places. <laughs> and Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? Sure, Twitter and Letterboxd, both at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. And I am also on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File, that's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so write us a nice review to make us feel your love. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz. Bye. When the rain is blowing on your face And the whole world is on keys I would offer you a warm embrace To make, to make you, you feel, feel my love When the evening shadows in the stars appear and there's no one there to dry your tears I could hold you for a million years To make you feel mine